This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of the companion nonprofit organizations, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy and Energy Makes America Great, Inc. And each week I write an energy-themed column. Usually it's news-based, but occasionally it will be based on the release of a new report or something like that. And that is the case this week. The topic for this week's column, which is posted online on a variety of sites with several different names, but the, the idea for this week's column was born several weeks ago, and I titled it, From Fracking to Flatuance, the All-Out Assault on Methane. I thought that kind of little funny tone might get, get some additional readers, but some other sites have given it a slightly different name. But you can find it out there on the Internet at townhall.com, at cfact.org, breitbart.com, and many other sites uh, that publish it. I mentioned the idea for this week's column was born several weeks ago, and I actually don't even remember the, the genesis of it, but we'll find that out with our first guest, who is a part of that. Because I became aware of, of methane as an issue uh, with the environmental community back in May when I was speaking in Farmington, New Mexico at the Four Corners Oil and Gas Conference. The speaker after me in the same room I was in was speaking on methane and natural methane seeps. Well, I stayed in the room and listened to her and was fascinated with what she had to say. Shortly thereafter, I was uh, contacted by... Uh, KVSP radio in Artesia, New Mexico, and they asked me to respond to a, a statement that the Sierra Club had sent out about methane leaks in New Mexico. I read what they'd written, listened to the interview he had done with the Sierra Club representative, and right then knew that I was going to ultimately be writing on methane. Uh, then through my contact with the Heartland Institute, I found out that they were looking at putting together a report on methane, and uh, we kind of agreed that I would hold off writing on methane till their report was ready and we would kind of partner on this. And so that's where we are today. That's how this, this column of mine came to be this week, and the reason it came to be this week is that the Heartland uh, report was available Monday, just this, this very week. So I'm delighted to have with me uh, Isaac Orr, who is the, a research fellow with the Heartland Institute, specifically in, for energy and environment policy. And he put together this 29-page uh, policy brief with nearly 70 footnotes, very well documented, very well done, and I would encourage all of our listeners to not just read my column, which is kind of a quickie overview of it, but to really go in depth and read Isaac's full report. So Isaac, with that said, thanks for taking the time out of your day to join us today on America's Voice for Energy and talk about the issue of methane and your report. Hey, Marita, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, you, you know, you did a great job uh, in working on this report, but this report came about, let's start with, um, it came about because of a piece that Bill McKibben wrote 
on on methane and calling methane a disaster and claiming that it was worse for global warming than CO2. Can you give us a little bit of background of, on how you guys uh, got into, you at the Heartland Institute discovered this piece or how you got interested in it? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the Heartland Institute talks about climate change a lot. And one of the things yes. we talk about is, you know, it's not that we don't believe that humans are having an impact on the environment because, you know, we think that CO2 emissions can have some impact, but we think that that uh, has been overestimated consistently by the International or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. So essentially we think it's possible that we're having an impact, but it's probably a lot less than, uh, what other people are saying. So uh, and that kind of loops into Bill McKibben because he believes uh, that we're having a much worse impact on the environment than even the IPCC says, even though we don't believe that the data or the evidence is there to support that. So uh, McKibben was, you know, really influential in getting the Keystone Pipeline stopped. Uh, he's founded uh, 350.org, which is an organization pretty much dedicated to stopping the use of all fossil fuels. Uh, so I think from a you know, personal standpoint, I think that they were so successful with uh, their Beyond Coal campaigns and, and that sort of stuff that they needed a new boogeyman, and that became methane. Yeah, and they, they're really attacking, um, attacking this as a way. I mean, he's blaming these supposed methane emissions on fracking, and his conclusion is that really the only way to stop methane emissions uh, is to just plain stop fracking, which essentially will stop oil and gas production in America, since we know that more than 95% of all new wells drilled in America are drilled using hydraulic fracturing. Yeah, and I think that that's a really oversimplified argument uh, on his part, because, you know, we get 63% of all of our total energy from oil and natural gas, 35% from oil, 28% from gas. So, you know, we can't just turn off a switch. We can't say, hey, we're not going to produce this here without having to import it from someplace else. So uh, I think that the environmental protections that we have here in the United States are probably better than most other places around the world, uh, especially as far as capturing methane is concerned. So, you know, we either produce it here where we have good environmental protections or we import it from Saudi Arabia or Canada. Yes, and we're and Canada's got good environmental protections that some of the other places yeah. don't have the same level. Now, you mentioned that methane is kind of the newest uh, boogeyman for the environmentalists. Can you, can you kind of take us on a little history of what, what they've hated along the way? Oh, gosh. <laughs> How long do you have? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so... Well, you know, just, just, just a brief background as to why this became today's issue, the issue du jour. Yeah, so um, the reason it is that, or is the, the new um, issue du jour, as you said, is uh, methane is more effective at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide, even though uh, as a percentage of the atmosphere, it's far less. So we measure CO2 in parts per million, uh, and methane is in the atmosphere at parts per billion. So I think it really does kind of boil back to that idea that uh, the Industrial Revolution is, you know, dramatically altering uh, temperatures is what uh, alarmists like to say. Uh, and then, you know, skeptics are more prone to attribute some of that to natural variation. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question exactly the way that you were hoping, but uh, if I didn't, we can talk about it a little bit more. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking before about, you know, they've, they've kind of been effective with killing coal, uh, yeah. unfortunately, in my opinion. And then, you know, they'd hoped, I believe that they, and of course, McKibben says this actually in his piece. It's mm-hmm. towards the end of his piece. He, he says what I think is, is really a, a key, key thing. And he says that, um, one of the nastiest side effects of the fracking boom, in fact, is that the expansion of natural gas has undercut the market for renewables. Yeah. And yep. I find that that's really um, a big part of the whole thing, is that, that the environmentalists, the anti-fossil fuel crowd, I don't like to think of them as environmentalists because... Right. I think I'm an environmentalist. I, I live on a little lake, on a, and I took my dog for a walk last night around the lake, and I always take, take grocery sacks with me and pick up trash along the way because I don't understand why anyone would trash their environment, why they would choose right. to live in filth. So, I mean, I, every time I go, go for a walk, I take trash bags with me and pick up trash. So I think I'm an environmentalist as well, so I don't really like to, to give them that moniker. I prefer to call them the anti-fossil fuel crowd. But I think that they had really banked on, and, and you can use that word in many, many ways, but they yep. had really banked on uh, a paradigm of scarcity. They had banked on that we were running out of oil, we were running out of natural gas. I mean, when I first got into this industry 10 years ago, we were importing natural gas into this country. Now we are exporting natural gas. So they were looking at a model of scarcity, and under a model of scarcity, the commodity becomes more expensive, which forces you to use less of it and also forces you to find alternatives. And in that model, wind and solar were going to be the savior. And because of that, um, they've they've had to come up with a way to kill, to end fracking. And, And they've talked about... It's going to cause earthquakes, which it doesn't. They've talked about it contaminates water, which it doesn't. So now they've had to come up with a new excuse, and that new excuse is methane. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, peak oil was very prominent, even when I started college back in 2005. Um, so, yeah, I guess they, they really did think that, um, you know, that's, that's the one thing that they didn't account for. They said, okay, well, oil's going to become more expensive, gas is going to be more expensive. Uh, so therefore, we need an alternative, but they didn't factor in the the alternative, which would be uh, we just develop better and more resourceful ways of extracting those resources. Um, so yeah, definitely, uh, the undercutting of the market is. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons I, I totally agree uh, that they are so upset about it. But yeah, let's get back into the the rest of it. I mean, the environmentalists have essentially thrown the book at fracking from you know water contamination and. You know, the thing that got me most, uh, when we talk about this Bill McKibben report, uh, he talked about Gasland, and he talked about uh, the Flaming Faucet, and he talked about, um, you know, just just that whole film is riddled with inaccuracies, but he never once talked about the EPA report that came out and said, hey, this isn't having a widespread systemic impact on groundwater resources, and, you know, there are instances where you have spills or, uh, leaky well casings, but those are rare compared to the numbers of wells drilled. So uh, the thing that got me most kind of riled up about that report was it, it didn't even try to be accurate. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what you point out, which we'll get to in our next segment because we've only got yeah. about a minute left in this segment, but what you point out in your report, 
your response to McKibben's piece is how many studies have been done on this topic and the different methodologies, but yet McKibben, in buttressing his argument, relies uh, really uh, heavily on uh, a couple of, of, I think, discredited uh, authors. Oh, yeah. So do you wanna do you wanna address that? I mean what were the reports that he cited? Okay, yeah. Um so he talked about a uh his the one he featured most prominently was out of Cornell University with uh Haworth and Ingrafia. I believe that's how you say both. Yes, it is. Uh so these are two pretty prominent anti fracking uh activists and I think that they've even admitted to themselves and the public that they're more concerned with being activists than scientists when it comes to this. Uh, so these guys are professors out of Cornell, and they produced this study that said, you know, uh, natural gas from fracking, uh, the emissions, the methane emissions from natural gas production from fracking in Pennsylvania are a lot worse than uh, conventional wells and probably worse than coal. And what they did was they assumed that no technology for capturing methane emissions were used during the drilling process. And they also said that there was no flaring that happened during the drilling process. And those are just two of the most unrealistic assumptions that, you know, somebody can make when it comes to how much methane is entering the atmosphere. So he kind of just took okay. their inflated numbers and ran with it. Well, we're going to take we're going to pick up right there when we come back and talk about more specifically uh, what you did uh, in your your report, your response to uh, Bill McKibben's piece. So we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. We're talking specifically today about 
fracking and methane emissions. We're talking with Isaac Orr, who's a research fellow with the Heartland Institute, and he's written a response to a piece that was published. Isaac, where was it published? In the Nation magazine? Is that where McKibben's piece was published? Yeah, I believe so. Anyway, it was published a few months ago, and uh, what Bill McKibben wrote was just so full of inaccuracies that it begged a response, which Isaac has written that was just posted this week on the Heartland Institute's website, and I link to it in my column, uh, which you can find on Breitbart.com, AmericanSpectator.org, and um, townhall.com, and, of course, the Heartland Institute website as well. So, Isaac, we were talking about uh, the report that, that Bill McKibben seemed to base his analysis on and its inaccuracies. Um, tell us what, what all you've done with your report to, to kind of counter that. Yeah, so his report was kind of based on those overinflated numbers. So, you know, uh, oh, you know exactly. what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Isaac. I, you you mentioned. I just wanted to pick up on something from before the break. You mentioned that they the the uh, Howworth and Anagraphia didn't oh, yeah. factor in flaring. Now, yep. most of our listeners probably know what flaring is, but if we have some folks listening who are not from within the oil and gas industry, can you just explain why that flaring issue is important? Yeah, so flaring is the process of burning methane at the wellhead. So methane is the primary component of natural gas, and when you burn it, it turns into water vapor and carbon dioxide. So what that does is that prevents the methane from entering the atmosphere, and it converts it into a greenhouse gas that is uh, less potent over the, you know, the long term. So uh, that's Now, really how, would, how would we burn, what, how and why, how do we get this methane? Again, I know this, but, but I want for our listeners, how do we get this methane? And if it's natural gas, why are we burning it? Why are we flaring it? Why are we not capturing it and selling it? Yeah, so uh, producers try to do that as much as they can. Uh, I mean, capturing and selling it is kind of their job. Uh, but they have, you know, yes. certain components like bleeder valves and that sort of thing that are, you know, prone to leaks. And some of them are more prone to leaks than others. And, you know, a lot of studies have actually been published that show that most of the methane emissions come from a small amount of leaks, which is good news in a way, um, because that way you can plug a few leaks and, you know, as a result, have a pretty big reduction in methane emissions. So, uh yeah, and as far as flaring goes, just one more thing, uh, it actually ca- or it captures a lot of other uh, volatile organic compounds that are out there, too. So, you know, it's just good practice for reducing pollution. And my understanding is that in many, many wellheads, uh, well, first off, you get methane co- when you're drilling for oil, uh, which yep. is a little easier to, easier to transport because it's a liquid than natural gas is. You often get a lot of natural gas up through the well at the same time, and that well may not be connected to a pipeline, uh, which, of course, the environmentalists oppose. And so in order to capture that methane, you really need a, need to feed it into a pipeline, and the wellhead may not be anywhere near a pipeline, so therefore the economic alternative is to flare that kind of secondary product that comes out of the well when they're drilling for oil. Is that a, is that a correct assessment? I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly right. And it's okay. kind of one of the other problems is that you have a bunch of uh, anti-fossil fuel crowd people. I'm going to adapt your language on that. And uh, <laughs> they they oppose the pipelines. So 
Even when you look at uh, northeast United States, where the Marcellus Shale is pumping out all kinds of natural gas, uh, and electricity prices are so high in New England, but they're opposing the pipelines in order to get it to them. Yes, and in fact, right now, as our show is airing, they're having a meeting up in North Dakota uh, because we've got big protests going on up there regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline or the Bakken Pipeline, which I wrote about a couple weeks ago, and there are big protests going on up there now that have blocked the progress because they're actually building that pipeline and they're trying to block that. So anyway, I'm getting on a tangent there on pipelines. Let's get back to I, I, I interrupted you yep. to, to talk about uh, flaring because you mentioned that term and I just thought I don't know that everybody really understands uh, what flaring is, so I wanted to make sure we covered that. So sure, you, you talked about the Engrafia and Howard study and that they didn't factor in flaring. Um, so go ahead and go where you want to go with that. Well, you know, the thing is uh, there's a lot of different results that we're getting from a lot of different measurement uh, ways that we do it. So measuring methane is a relatively new thing when it comes to how concerned are we about methane emissions. So there's top-down measurements, there's up-down measurements. So basically top-down measurements are when you fly an airplane over with an infrared camera and look for methane emissions, which is cool because you can see generally where methane emissions are coming from but it's also got limitations in that it could be from cattle, it could be from wetlands, uh, and you can't really uh, quantify how much is there. So you can't measure how much methane. You can just kind of get an idea if there is methane. Then you've got bottom-up measurements that are more specific, um, and they've usually found a lot less methane emissions than aerial surveys. So I, I, it's my understanding that when you do those aerial surveys, that um, and maybe even satellite that mm-hmm. some some areas such as the four corners of New Mexico show up really hot. They say yep. where other uh, big oil fields do not show up hot. So it's, it, there's that's real inconclusive. That it's difficult to say. Well, it's obviously from oil and gas development because the Barnett doesn't come up so hot, the Eagleford doesn't come up so hot, Marcellus doesn't come up so hot. So that you've got some real uh, differing differing data. Yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, there's a tendency between the anti-fossil fuel crowd to always point it at fossil fuels no matter what they find. Um, And, you know, in the four corners, there's a lot of natural methane seeds. There's a lot of coal bed methane, that sort of stuff. So I don't think that they necessarily account for that as often as they ought to, but... Um, and that's why some of these different kind of studies that you address in your report, and tell us the name of your report also, but that's, in your report you address a lot of these different methodologies. Yeah, so uh, the original report that Bill McKibben wrote was Global Warming's Terrifying New Chemistry, and that, that's his thing. He talks about methane being the, the new uh, boogeyman when it comes to global warming, and I just thought that, well, why not play on his title and say Bill McKibben's terrifying disregard for fracking facts. <laughs> so that's the name of your report. Yeah, I mean, I figure I might as well needle the guy a little bit if he's going to rep- produce a report that, that's bad, or that is that bad. Yes. So what are some of the other discrepancies in his report that you've addressed? Yeah, so um, the, the it's just... Basically, it's why did he cherry-pick the data as badly as he did. There's a lot of studies out there that suggest that methane emissions are, you know, quite low in some of the biggest producing basins. So, like, in the Marcellus Shale, um, the Hainsford, and that sort of, or those places, 
um, Hainesville, sorry, uh, they are, you know, lower than the 2 or 3% of total production that some people think would be, you know, bad for um, the temperatures, global temperatures. And it was just so obvious to somebody who's, you know, in the industry or, you know, pays attention to the industry, looks at the data, but it was still pretty convincing from an emotional argument for normal readers. So that was really the, the impetus behind it. But um, as far as some of his other things, he, he talked about uh, the thing that, like, really got my blood going uh, was he talked about, you know, the, the choice used to be between coal and natural gas, but that's not germane anymore because uh, Denmark now produces 42% of its power from renewable energy. And he really, I mean, that's, that's a snake oil argument if I've ever heard one. Uh, when you look at the, yeah, and uh, what you what you did with that was one of my favorite parts of your your report. Yeah, because I'm so sick of people being are uh, being out there saying, "Oh, well, look, Germany's paying negative power or negative prices for power." Like that's not good for the grid, and people need to understand that. Uh, Denmark gets five percent of their total energy from renewables, but other than that, they're basically as dependent on fossil fuels as we are. Uh, but they have the highest electricity rates in Europe. They pay about three times more than we do for electricity in the United States. So there are real negative consequences pursuing these sorts of policy initiatives that uh, kind of get swept under the rug a lot of times by green people or the anti-fossil fuel crowd, and they're not even proposing something that's a real answer to the problem. No, their only answer is wind and solar, which, as you know, we know, does produce electricity. But it, as I like to say, albeit inefficiently, ineffectively, and uneconomically. And uh, you know, McKibben in his piece, if you read it carefully, I mean, it takes a little bit of re- reading between the lines, but he yeah. acknowledges that his plan is going to chase jobs overseas. And that his plan, uh, because his plan, will raise electricity prices. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing when Obama said electricity electricity prices will necessarily skyrocket. And I think a lot of people who advocate for wind and solar think the wind is free, the sun is free, so why isn't the electricity free? And uh, that's, to me, that's one of my biggest goals, is just trying to get people to understand the real trade-offs between oil and gas and or coal or nuclear, whatever your source of energy is. But I don't think if people had to charge their phone uh, only when the sun shined and, or the wind blew and then, you know, you know, pay five or three times more for the privilege, I don't think people would choose that. I think they would choose to have the affordable option that's always there. So they would want the natural gas-fired electricity that allows them to plug their phone in whenever they want and charges them, you know, substantially less money. And I think if you phrased it that way, people would get it. They'd start to get it, at least. Yeah, and I hope so. I want to really encourage our listeners to check out uh, your report, uh, which you can get through a link in my column, or you can go directly to the Heartland Institute. And, Isaac, how would people find your report on the Heartland Institute site? Yeah, so I think it'll be featured on the front page of the website, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah, congratulations. Talented people there at Heartland, and uh, it's always nice to be able to snag the front page for a couple days at least. So heartland.org is the website, and uh, I think that will be really uh, prominently featured there for a little while. So you should be able to find it there, either that or just kind of type in uh, Bill McKibben's terrifying disregard for fracking facts in Google, and, you know, that will take you right there. Uh, Is there anything else you want to talk about 
that you feel I haven't addressed? No, and we're, we're about out of time. We're not out of time. We have a minute or so left. But um, I, I do want to make sure that I encourage our listeners to check out the report. You know, when I speak at industry groups, I always encourage them to say, you know, we need to be equipped with knowledge so that when you're at a family gathering, maybe Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever, or yeah. you're at your kid's soccer team and you're talking to a parent and they find out you're, you're in the oil and gas industry and they go, oh, my gosh, that's so bad. You need to have you need to be informed with information so that you have, you know, they, they may be equipped with what Bill McKibben says or yep. the likes of him. And it's really important for uh, others out there to, to have, know the other side of the story. And even those actually who, you know, support Bill McKibben's viewpoint need to, to see what the other side is so you know there is another side. And so yeah, I and encourage to... our listeners to read your report. Go ahead, Isaac. We've got about, 30, oh, about uh, 20 seconds. I was going to say, and they need to know the shortcomings of that report, too, and that's all I really had to say. So uh, you should be able yeah. to find that report on the Heartland Institute website and follow me on Twitter at The Fracking Guy. Great. Isaac Orr, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. For our listeners, please stay tuned. We're going to talk with Bob Inlick, a meteorologist who specialized in studying some uh, methane issues in New Mexico, and he'll be with us in our next segment. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about methane, more particularly methane emissions and the supposed disaster that they pose for climate change. So to talk to us more specifically about methane emissions themselves, I'm delighted to welcome back to the program my friend Bob Inlick, who's a retired meteorologist, served our country in the Air Force for his uh, career, and now really has made it kind of a, a post, what, what would you say, Bob, a, a post-career career, a hobby, I guess, of following climate change issues and specifically methane in New Mexico. Well, that's one of the things I'm working on. I, after I retired from the Air Force, I worked at the National High Energy Laser Test Facility at White Sands Missile Range, 
and we were very concerned with the particular the the particular content of the atmosphere because the atmosphere absorbs the laser beam. So I got to know a little bit about how we measure specifically the absorption of radiation in the atmosphere. So I spent... And I assume when you say you got to know a little bit, I assume you're saying that with a note of sarcasm in your voice. Well, yeah, perhaps irony. Because you know a lot. I, I, made two, I made forecasts on the ability of the laser to deposit energy on uh, supposedly military targets um, based on my measurements and forecasts of uh, the atmosphere and its, uh, be, its ability to, um, uh, to degrade the beam. So uh, this was something that was uh, uh, taken into account in the planning of the test. Nonetheless, I know probably more than the average person about how these measurements are made, and, um, and so uh, I also was a geology major, so, you know, I, I, I get a little bit about the uh, petroleum and gas content of the, uh, of the sedimentary deposits, especially in New Mexico. You know, and I'm honored to consider you one of my, A, a friend, but also an advisor that I can reach out to. I had someone on Twitter last week uh, sent me a tweet that was critical of me. I mean, of course, and I do get that from time to time. When you take the views I take, you're going to get a few people attacking you. But this tweet, and I'm trying to find it as I'm, I'm talking about it, but basically he said something about, do you even have any academic background in atmospheric physics? And and I'm like, you know, I didn't bother. I didn't waste my time responding to this person's uh comment, but no, I don't have any, but I have people like you that I count on. I'm the communicator, and I count on people like you who uh, can advise me and make sh review my work and make sure that, that I'm on target, and as you did with this week's column, which I so greatly appreciate. So with, with your background, which obviously is not my background, um, tell us, tell us what, what's the story, what's the problem and where are the anti-fossil fuel crowd wrong in this issue? Okay, well, basically what I do is I go back to my knowledge of uh, the atmospheric spectra, that is, uh, what are the constituent gases in the atmosphere, what are their concentrations, and what are their abilities uh, to, to enhance the so-called greenhouse effect. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about these greenhouse gases. Uh, the greenhouse gases, um, what they do is they absorb the radiation from the surface of the Earth. So the sur you know, sun comes up, the, the Earth gets warmer, and, and you can feel that radiation, especially if you walk around the corner of a house near sunset. You'll feel the, the heat from the house coming out. Well, that, that goes out, and the uh, alarmists say that the uh, radiation is trapped. No, it is not. What it is is it, uh, it slows the loss of heat from the surface. So supposedly it is so important um, that, it, that it is going to cause this great, uh, great global warming catastrophe. Well, what you have to do is you have to uh, understand the power of each of the individual gases and, uh, and how that acts in the real world. So what we have done in the past, and I was sort of a bystander, is what you do is you have a, 
what's called a, a cell or a white cell, and uh, it may be uh, maybe 100 feet long. And what we do is flood that cell with the different constituent gases one at a time to determine their absorbing power. Now, supposedly methane is alarming to people like Bill McKibben, who you mentioned uh, in your column this week, because the methane is increasing, and methane supposedly has uh, 25 or 50, you know, the, the number changes, uh, the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. Well, that's true in that environment. But we also have the other greenhouse gases, uh, and right now in the, in the western U.S., we're in the monsoon. And there's another greenhouse gas. The most important greenhouse gas is water vapor. And water vapor is up to 4%, especially on humid August days like today. So we got 40,000 uh, parts per million water vapor, which is very active in absorbing uh, the gases, the, the heat that's emitting from, um, from the surface. So that's the reason sometimes the minimum temperatures, uh, you know, might get up to near 100 degrees in the daytime, and it might get down to only about 72 or 73. If you live over in Tucson or Phoenix, it might get as low as 85. Well, part of that has to do with the fact that it gets really hot, and part of it has to do with this enhanced greenhouse effect from the water vapor. But when it's dry, you, you'll maybe lose 40 degrees of temperature from the maximum of the day. And so, uh, and then we uh, good, ex good explanation. That, that, that's very helpful. Thank you. Well, good. Uh, so what people are saying is, well, uh, the, uh, the uh, amount of methane in the air has increased from about uh, uh, 1,600 uh, parts per million uh, to 1,800 parts per million, and that's going to cause catastrophe. Well, there's about three reasons why that's wrong. Uh, the, first is, the first is that uh, the, McKibben claims that these, he, he cites this Harvard study, which you mentioned in, in your article uh, this week, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, says, well, you know, this is all coming from the United States. Wrong. What I've done is I've looked at the original data, and the original data from about uh, uh, 2003 to 2012 came from a satellite that the Europeans flew, which is called Envisat. Envisat is still in orbit, but it, for all practical purposes, it, it died in 2012. And there's another satellite called the GoSat that the Japanese have launched. And both of these satellites measured, uh, among other things, the methane in the air, the carbon dioxide in the air. So there are maps, and you can go look at these maps, and you can see where the methane is emanating from, and it's not emanating from uh, a particular in urban or industrial or fossil fuel-based um, industrial base. You can see it comes out of places like the water from the ocean. Uh, so, uh, you know, yes, the numbers over the U.S. have increased, but they've increased globally. So there's some sort of global signature that's not understood. And to blame this on the oil and gas industry and causing some great uh, catastrophe is just flat wrong. Yeah, and I understood, you know, I, I mentioned in the previous segment that I kind of got alerted to this when I was in uh, 
Farmington, New Mexico, back in May for the Four Corners Oil and Gas Conference, and I heard Amber, uh, no, Ashley, what is her name? You you know who Hager, I'm talking about. Ashley yeah. Eager, I think is her name. Yeah, and she was talking about some of the satellite photos and how they showed a methane hotspot over the Four Corners area, but there was not a corresponding hotspot over other big uh, oil and gas production areas such as the Permian Basin or the Eagleford or the Marsalis. Can you address Absolutely. that at all? Yeah, I can, certainly can. Now, what happened was there have been methane leaks in the uh, in the San Juan Basin in New Mexico. Uh, and uh, so uh, there's a fellow named Eric Court, and he was the prime author of an article that went out of the uh, American Geophysical Union in late 2012. It talks about a methane hotspot. Well, in order to get that hotspot, he had to do some uh, exotic uh, uh, manipulation of the data. So what he did essentially was he added in the methane that is normally lost up at the top in the top of the atmosphere, the stratosphere. He put that back in in order to show that it's this enhancement uh, over over New Mexico, and so that created a great about a lot. There's a little bit of sleight of hand, I think, in the way Dr. Court did that. And I emailed him, but I never got a response back because you don't see it in the basic data from the Envisat or the GoSat. You have to do this differencing in order to have it show up. Anyhow, there was a big uh, uh, aircraft and ground-based measurement campaign, and they actually found, uh, I think the article says, and this, this came out, and proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences just last week. And they found, I think, 245 or 247 sources, the top 10 of which are account for over half of it. And so uh, they uh, notified the particular refineries and other uh, uh, handling facilities uh, of their findings, and the guys went out and fixed it like the very next day. Because normally you can't see methane, uh, and and the way in 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 the uh, in the environment you can't see it because it's an odorless gas. And the reason you can smell it in your house is because the gas company adds a chemical very similar to skunk oil, uh, so that you can smell it. But normally you can't smell it or see it. So the, these guys use infrared uh, imaging devices, and you can see the stuff. They also found. Uh, to Ashley's credit, um, some natural sources. And, of course, we, we can't do much about the natural sources. Well, so this was a targeted area, targeted campaign. Again, I, it was published in the National Academy of Sciences. But, you see, if you look at the basic satellite data, you find, like, for instance, in the swamps of North Carolina, in the swamps of Louisiana, and in the oceans, these other vast sources of methane. And um, and so to pick on the oil and gas industries, especially the oil and gas industries in the United States, is a bit like pounding sand in, in a rat hole or trying to shovel against the tide. Uh, there are these other natural sources not associated with the oil and gas industry that, in, in my judgment, looking at the satellite imagery itself, uh, don't over, completely overwhelm what's going on with oil and gas. And certainly... You know, there's these. You know, there's this um, initiative by the EPA to to try to uh, uh, put out new rules 
to yeah. reduce the yeah. loss of uh, methane. Well, you know, these guys want to capture it and sell it because they can sell it to the gas companies, and then the gas companies exactly. sell it to us. So it all makes sense. But, you know, the thing is, we have now some technology that can find these leaks. Well, let's fix them. But we are not, there is no climate crisis. We can, you know, even though the Democratic, um, it's hard to get political, but if you look at the Democratic. Uh, uh, yes, and Bob, we're about out of time. All right. Um, we're about out of time, so we're going to have to not go political. But you've done a great job, you know, I, and you know I love to go political, but you've done a great job explaining the, the methane issue to us. And I uh, look forward to having you back on America's Voice for Energy again sometime soon. So we're, we'll Thank be right you. back on America's Thank Voice you. for Energy. Stay with us. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We've had a great show today talking about methane and methane emissions and specifically my column this week that addressed that topic. Now, my column has several different titles depending on where it's published. But uh, one of the titles is From Fracking to Flatulence, the All-Out Assault on Methane. And that's what we're talking about this week. But it's got some very specific players in this story. And so for our closing segment this week, we're going to be talking with Tom Shepstone, who is a planning consultant and the publisher of Natural Gas Now dot org a website that's also published my column this week and, and tom was helpful to me in understanding some of the parts of this story specifically the players so tom thanks for joining us today on america's voice for energy uh, it's great to be with you marina well thank you and you were real helpful to me in uh, specifically uh talking about anthony and graffia because i remembered his name when i saw his name in the McKibben piece, it kind of rang an alarm bell for me because I had dealt with him and, and uh, 
some of his story uh, back when I wrote on the Dimmick, Pennsylvania lawsuit, and I think that's where you and I originally connected. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah, so I, when I read Hingrafia's name in there, it, like I said, it just rang alarm bells for me, and I, went, I came to you for some help, and you were very helpful. What are some of the things our listeners need to know about the players in general? And you can start with whoever you want to start with. Uh, obviously, McKibben, who wrote this piece, is one of the players as well. Yeah, that's right. Let me let me start with Tony Ingrafia, um, who I you know I've, I've debated at various times uh, on panels and so on, and have appeared at various events where he's been and heard him speak many many times. Um, and he's a perfectly uh, you know perfect gentleman when you meet him and all that. But he is a he's really a paid shill for the, a group called the Park Foundation. The Park Foundation is uh, like so many of these uh, uh, elitist foundations is a very wealthy uh, second generation uh, run foundation that promotes all sorts of uh, extreme left and extreme environmental causes. Um, the, the foundation was established by a fellow by the name of Roy Park, who made his fortune in communications and in uh, Duncan Hines' bake mixes and things like that. And he had a place in Ithaca, New York, and uh, that's where he, he uh, resided. And uh, So when his, like so many of these families, when the first generation dies off, the second generation, the spoiled generation, the trust funders take over. <laughs> and uh, so Adelaide Park Gomer is his daughter, and she now runs the foundation, her and her daughter. And it is a, it's a pure, you know, ra- radical environmentalist group. And they fund uh, everything anti-fracking, everything anti-oil, anti-gas, uh, uh, every, everything, you know, leftist, really. But uh, particularly on the environmental side. And uh, Tony Ingrafia is, uh, along with Bob Howarth, his partner on so many of these things, uh, is, is funded by them. Now, they're both on the Cornell faculty, Cornell University. Uh, but they're both advocates. I mean, we, you know, we have pictures of, of uh, Bob Howarth uh, running around with, uh, you know, buttons uh, being anti-fracking. We have pictures of Tony and Graffia, you know, uh, sidling up next to uh, Yoko Ono and having a great time, you know, posing fracking with her. And, of course, as you and I both know in the Dimmick uh, trial there, uh, Tony admitted that he was an advocate. Um, so he's he's paid to do this work by the Park Foundation. So, so and, let me let me interrupt yeah. you for a minute because I'm an advocate. You're sure. an advocate. So Absolutely. what's wrong with being an advocate? Not a thing as long as you admit it. Uh, and Tony only admits it under great great pressure. Uh, and the same with Bob Howard. I mean, what they try to do is maintain the position that somehow they're independent scientists. Uh, uh, working okay. for Cornell, and and of course they published this methane study, which has been criticized roundly around the world, um, uh, and including Cornell. Uh, you know, these, there's a couple of professors at Cornell who are very, you know, knowledgeable and uh, have credentials just as good or better than uh, Tony and Bob, and they have roundly criticized. I mean, it, it's a scam study, really, and it, it, it twists the numbers and extends out the analysis period in order to produce the desired outcome. So and what do they say in response to that? When their own colleagues, their own peers criticize their study, do they have any response? Not, not Nothing effective. I mean, they, they've really receded into the background. Uh, uh, they're seldom quoted, actually, anymore. And that's one of the things that surprised me about Bill McKibben uh, quoting them, because 
they really have lost their allure in the scientific community. I think most people recognize, uh, including people who are not necessarily on our side, uh, who say, "Look, this just isn't. This just doesn't cut the mustard. You know, it's uh, it just doesn't get it done. It's not. It's not good science. It's junk science." Uh, and they they really don't have a good defense of that. And uh, and as a result, as I said, you don't hear a lot about them. But McKibben, of course, is out there, and he's the other uh, player. And like like them, he owes his living to the Rockefeller family. Um, he comes from uh, Middlebury College, which again is a very left leaning college up in Vermont, very you know environmental purism uh, type place. Uh, and I, I, know uh-huh. some good pe- I know some good people from there. I'm not condemning the college necessarily, but it's that sort of place. And right. uh, and the dean of the, one of the not one not one of the deans, but one of the uh, one of the leadership of the college was Stephen Clark Rockefeller, who was Nelson Rockefeller's son. And, of course, he's the author of the Earth Charter, uh, and he is one of the mentors of Bill McKibben. Um, and Bill McKibben um, has no resources of his own. He depends on the Rockefeller family uh, and the Park Foundation to some extent as well to support the activities of 350.org, which is his group. And that's that's who pays him to do what he does uh, mm-hmm. through these very wealthy foundations. Um, and uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of any of these guys, but I'd have to say McKibben's the worst of the three, okay, in the sense that he's that he has the biggest reputation and he comes off as this uh, a very thoughtful, you know, maybe a little eccentric uh, guy who is just so committed. And the reality is he's, he's a paid shill. Once again, he's a paid shill. And, and he uh, does some things that I find very reprehensible. He constantly tweets out these uh, references to violence that's taken by fractivists and other anti-gas uh, and oil groups. And he, he thinks this stuff is just great. He tweets it out like, oh, this is wonderful, you know. Well, you know, in my column, I pointed out three things, three bullet points towards the end that I think any thinking American would agree with. Um, the fracking boom offered one of the few economic bright spots. These are, right. these are quotes from the McKibben piece. Manufacturing jobs were actually returning from overseas, attracted by newly abundant energy, and the tool that made restrictions on coal palatable. Well, maybe that one you could question. But these, these points, he sees these things as negatives. He yeah, sees these three things, and that's, you know, we would all go, okay, yeah, this is good. Fracking offered a few economic bright spots, you know. And, but to him, these are negatives. Yeah, and, and not only that, Marita, but, you know, I'm not a global warmist. I, I, I'm probably where you are in it, but and most of your listeners. But uh, if you are a global warmist, you ought to love natural gas and fracking because we have produced the, the dramatic reductions in CO2, dramatic reductions that no other country has achieved because we've substituted natural gas for coal. Now, I'm not anti-coal either, but that's just the Nor truth. I. I mean, it's just yeah. the truth, you know. And if, if you care about CO two emissions, if you believe yeah. that they are the cause of climate change, right? That's right. Which I don't. But if you believe that, you should love natural gas. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's it, it's just that's just the way it is. That's the I say it exactly the way you do. And uh, uh, so it's incomprehensible, except for the fact that the the bigger agenda is not the environment the bigger agenda is is very political as you and i both know and that's what this is really all about it's about you know grabbing control of governmental institutions grabbing control over people's lives it's about 
setting themselves up as little, uh, you know, uh, utopian dictators, you know, and uh, uh, that's what this is all about. It's, it's uh, the environment is just the, is just the vehicle for doing it, you know. So. You know, and that's why I was so shocked, frankly, in the McKibben piece when I read it, and obviously my, my column is really kind of an o- overview of the piece that Isaac Orr did for the Heartland Institute in which he takes McKibben's argument apart piece by piece, but there were some things that I picked up on in McKibben's piece because they're kind of my little hobby horses, so to speak, and I love that McKibben says, and because this this was just shocking to me that he admitted this, one of the nastiest side effects of the fracking boom, in fact, is that the expansion of natural gas has undercut the market for renewables. I was really shocked that he flat out admitted that because when I give speeches, people often ask when they they learn that fracking has been going on for decades, successfully, safely happening for decades. They're like, well, then what's the sudden, what's the, why are they suddenly so against fracking? And that's basically the answer I give them, that they had built this worldview based on the idea that we could power the world with butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. And fracking has unleashed so much abundant, available, and affordable energy that it's totally knocked their their uh, foundation for this worldview right out from underneath them. Right, and 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 but here's the thing: uh, it's it's now becoming very clear, I think, to most reasonable people who are looking at this, that that natural gas is absolutely essential to the thriving of solar and wind because solar and wind both have to you know they can only work when the sun shines and when the wind blows uh until we get a much better storage than we now have and the likelihood of getting that kind of storage uh that can deliver power as quickly as we need it um on demand in a cost-effective way in a cost-effective way is is extremely limited and and so you've got to have the ability if you're going to use those things at all you've got to have the ability to have something that delivers that quick energy when you need it when the other when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing and will will supplement the, will not just supplement provide the base and then the solar and wind supplement uh that's the way it works and 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 reasonable people are now coming to conclusion that the only way to advance solar and wind on a sound footing where you're not you know just subsidizing the, the heck out of it is to have natural gas as the foundation and so so he's wrong on that too <laughs> you know, yeah it, and, and it's just amazing it's just amazing it is amazing. It is amazing to see the, the argument and what, what lengths kind of contortions he went into to, to create this argument. So I encourage all our listeners, if you haven't already read first my column on this topic, but um, I really encourage you to read uh, McKibben's full piece and then the Heartland's response to the full piece and it, because you'll, you can see what, what contortions he's gone into uh, to, to present this argument. Yes, exactly. I couldn't agree more, Maria. Well, we're about out of time for this week's show, and we've been talking in this segment with Tom Shepstone, who's a planning consultant and the publisher of naturalgasnow.org website. I'd encourage you to check it out. He's published my column this week on his website as well, and hopefully uh, we'll publish some other of my work as it becomes relevant for, for his readers. So, Tom, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Marina.
Great, and we hope all of you will tune in again next week for America's Voice for Energy, heard each week on americaswebradio.com. Thanks for listening. This is americaswebradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.